You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, happy final Sunday of Advent to you all, and happy ugly Christmas sweater Sunday. You guys look great. I have to say, I ordered an ugly Christmas sweater, and it came, and it was truly hideous, and I just couldn't do it. This morning, the time came, and I was like, ah, I I just can't. So you can call me like Christmas festive. That's what I'm going for, but uh, you all look wonderful and hideous at the same time. So great. So great. This year, and really these past couple of years, the liturgical season of Advent has felt more and more like a gift to me. In the church, these weeks leading up to Christmas are all about waiting. They're all about being hopeful. They're all about looking out for this new and good and bright thing that's going to be birthed into our incredibly dark world. In light of that, there is a pretty substantial part of me that really loves the worshipful part of Advent and Christmas. This is the part of me that loves that we get to sing all of these wonderful Advent songs that the worship band has been leading us in these past several weeks. It's the part of me that loves lighting the candles. It loves um, reading all of these parts in scripture that are absolutely my favorite. It's also the part of me that kind of wants to get the lyrics to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, like tattooed on my forehead or something. I don't know. I just really love Advent. Uh, It's my favorite season of the Christian calendar for sure. But at the same time, there's another side of me that really loves the non-Jesus part of Christmas too. I bet you know what I mean when I say that. Um, I really love Christmas parties, I love baking, I love Christmas music, I love decorating, I even love Christmas smells. Do you love Christmas smells? Like, you go into Bath and Body Works and just inhale. So good. But more than all of that, I love Christmas movies. I'm a Christmas movie fiend, and I love them because they all seem to exist in this weird, alternate universe, where there are no pandemics where there's no tragedies, there's no war, nothing like that. There's just snow and Santa and Christmas. It's the best. Um, And I'm going to confess, I'm one of those people who will watch Christmas movies at any time of the year, February, July, October, you know, just whenever I get in the Christmas mood. And when I get a chance to watch these movies with friends or family members, The ones that know me best are always waiting for the make it or break it moment in these Christmas movies for me. Uh, In almost every Christmas movie, there is this super cheesy, I mean super lovely moment uh, where one of the characters tries to name the true meaning of Christmas. You've seen the movies like this before, haven't you? Uh, It typically happens like 34, 30 fifths of the way through the movie, it's like almost at the end. And some great drama has just been overcome and settled, and 
Uh, it has just started to snow very gently outside, and everyone is gathered around a super symmetrical Christmas tree. Like, look at that thing. You could fold it in half, and it would be exactly the same on both sides. That, that's not a real tree. Come on. It's, like, decorated perfectly. And uh, finally, one of the main characters says, you know, everyone, I finally figured out what Christmas is actually about. The true meaning of Christmas is blank. You know insert vague platitude here. And then everybody lifts their mugs of steaming hot chocolate to the sky where Santa's sleigh flies overhead, right past the Star of Bethlehem, which is somehow also there. Um, I guess like the alternate uni universe has both things. Um, and then someone says like, Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night, or like, God bless us, everyone. And then it's the end of the movie, right? That's, those are Christmas movies for you. Now listen, I, I'm really not one of those people that gets really angry when Christmas isn't just about Jesus. I just admitted to watching Christmas movies in July, so um, I'm not one of those people. But it always makes me laugh when a character in a Christmas movie has the boldness to say the true meaning of Christmas is, and they finish that sentence with just the most casual thing. They're like, the meaning of Christmas is generosity or friendship. And it's like, ah, it's not that Christmas isn't about those things. It could be. But to me, those seem like the shallowest version of what Christmas is really about. So anyone who watches a Christmas movie with me, I'm sorry to say, you'll be subjected to that moment, make it or break it. The true meaning of Christmas is, they say it, and I usually go, ooh, <laughs> so close, but not quite. <laughs> so after many years of judging Christmas movie after Christmas movie after Christmas movie all year round, it feels very fitting for me to take a chance and name for us today what the true meaning of Christmas is for us here and now. It works out though, because here we are, gathered around this very symmetrical Christmas tree. Isn't that lovely? And uh, it's not snowing outside, it's like 70 degrees. But um, it, we do have the AC on in here, and we don't have hot chocolate, but I think some of you are drinking coffee, so it's close enough, right? So it feels like now is the perfect moment for me to say this. The true meaning of Christmas is comfort, and challenge and obedience. Now I know that those three things sound like three very different things, and they are, they are. But I truly believe it is all of them. And I also believe that we really, really need all of them right now. At its core, Christmas is a season of comfort. You know, tidings of comfort and joy and all that. And this is true because of the incarnation. This season is called Advent because it really is the advent, the beginning, the start of something truly miraculous. The moment when God, the God of the universe, becomes embodied and lives a human life here on the earth. The fancy theological word for this is the incarnation. This is the event, this is the reality that we gather each year to anticipate and celebrate at Christmas time. It's what we're all doing here today. And it should be a comfort to us. Because Christmas means that Jesus, who is God, deeply and intimately understands what it is like 
to look around at this world and to be deeply grieved by it. Jesus knows what it's like to feel the pain of being a human right to his very core. Jesus knows that this is not the way it should be. And that's because Jesus, little eight pound, six ounce, dear Lord, baby Jesus, was born into a world that when we stop to think about it, does not look all that different from the world that you and I are living in today. The world that many of us are grieved by right in this very moment. It was a world that was torn apart by poverty and disease and war, tragedy and strife. It was this world that chewed people up and spit them out. A world that more often than not seemed to be hurtling toward destruction, moving backwards, farther and farther away from goodness. This was the world that Jesus was born into at Christmas. It's our world. It's the world that we live in. And I find that truth to be incredibly comforting. I often think about what it would be like if God had never become incarnate, had never become a human person. What kind of prayers would we have to pray? Mine, I know, would sound something like this. Um, Dear God, hello, me again. Uh, Excuse me, sir. Um, I'm sorry that I did that thing that you told me not to do again. But listen, it's brutal out here, man. It's really hard. Like, life is so hard. I know you don't understand, but just take my word for it. Being human sucks. Amen. (laughs) But because of Jesus, we don't ever have to pray that prayer. God already knows. God already knows why it can be so crushing to live in this world. God knows. Jesus knows. And so when we look around at the world, when we read the news we feel our hearts breaking, we can trust that our God's heart is breaking right along with ours. We don't have to tell God how hard life has been these last several months, these last several years. We can know that the words of the psalmist, that I would say are more prophetic than anything else, that they are truer now at Christmas than ever before. The psalmist says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and God saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is the promise. This is the gift of Christmas. The knowledge that this painful journey that we are all on is not one that we have to go on alone. This is the kind of divine solidarity that can offer us just a little bit of peace if we let it. But in the same kind of paradoxical way that the gospel often sort of takes shape in our lives, Christmas is at the same time a word of challenge. It is a challenge because Jesus did not always inhabit such a lowly position in the world. There was once a time in which the most marginalized, the most oppressed, the most disinherited in our midst would not have found much comfort from Jesus, king of the universe, who God uh, 
sends to earth in this crazy moment. And, and the gospel writer, John, says that uh, this, this Jesus uh, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, meaning that Jesus is one and the same with God. Jesus has all of the same powers and privileges of this position of being divine at his disposal all the time, all the power, all the knowledge existing from all time and into all time, that's Jesus. And yet in the incarnation, there is a pouring out of all of those things. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, uh, and Pastor Kyle discussed several weeks ago about how Jesus takes the form of a slave, a servant, emptying himself. Jesus chose to literally descend to our level, to come down to earth, to be with us, to become distinctly powerless, dependent, limited, and you might even say fragile. And Jesus did that for the whole world, the whole world for all of us, in order to offer us a different way, to teach us how to live the kind of life that can never truly be killed. To, to reveal to us not what it means to be divine, but what it means to truly be human. To empower us to seek healing and wholeness, not just for ourselves, but for the whole of our broken world. Jesus did all of that for the sake of salvation. And maybe that sounds like a word of comfort to you, and if it does, I'm really glad. But here's the challenge in it. I hope you already heard it. Those of us with power and privilege and strength and health are called to have the same mind and the same heart as this Jesus that we claim to follow. And so if we are to do that, it means that we are called to pour ourselves out for the sake of of salvation too. We are also called to live this life of sacrificial love, of down-to-earth humility that Jesus models for us. We too are called to give of ourselves for others. That is the challenge of Christmas. Now that's all well and good. It makes for a pretty nice Christmas sermon, if I do say so myself. Uh, if we could just stop right there, that'd be great. But unfortunately for us, Christmas doesn't stop there. Christmas isn't just about giving and receiving or being together or love. Christmas is about something much more than just that. Now, I'm, another confession here, notoriously bad at math. Uh, they don't really teach you calculus in seminary. Um, but I have a little proposal, a little equation for us this morning, uh, between services, uh, our worship leader, Kyle Miller, who is a math tutor slash nerd, um, solved this equation for me, which I didn't think was possible, so that's fun. Um, you can ask him about it later. I did not understand what he was saying, but it sounded really smart. So here's the math equation. Here is my proposal. When you add comfort to challenge in the context of Christmas, what you get is obedience. Comfort plus challenge multiplied by Christmas equals obedience. And if there is one word in the whole of the English language that makes me the most itchy, it is that one. 
Pastor Kyle and I uh, spent quite a while planning this Advent sermon series, and we were trying to figure out who was going to preach what and when we were going to preach, and it came down to it, and we realized I was going to preach today, and I could tell by the look on his face that he did not think that was a good idea because he knows that obedience is not really my thing. It's not really my uh, spiritual gift. And if it was, I don't think I would be standing here. I don't think I'd be preaching to you. But when I'm faced with this question about the meaning of Christmas, I always turn to the one person who knew about it before anybody else did. I always turn to the one person who was there from day one. I always turn to Mary. And lucky for us, Mary is much better at math than I am. And what I mean by that is that if she were here, Mary would tell us that obedience is the name of the game at Christmas. Our gospel writer tells us that at a young age, much younger than I am now, Mary was approached by an angel out of the blue. They had a very, very weird conversation, maybe the weirdest conversation in human history, And then Mary submitted with pure obedience to the will and the favor of God. As a direct result of her yes to God, she became pregnant, as we know. And we tend to romanticize this moment in the church so much. But what we rarely stop to think about is what Mary was agreeing to in that moment. Rarely do we think about what this obedience would earn for her. As soon as it became obvious to those around her that she was pregnant, Mary would have been shunned by her entire family and the surrounding community. She would have been dismissed as sinful and crazy any time she tried to explain what had happened to her. It's possible that there may have even been a moment where her life was in danger, Because the consequence uh, for a woman who was believed to have committed adultery was to be stoned to death. Thankfully, Mary was spared from this. But even so, in all of the moments, every single moment after the one that Zach read so well for us today, all of the moments after that where Mary, she travels to be with her cousin Elizabeth, who is the only family member who will even speak to her anymore, And they have this beautiful moment where they realize what's happening and Mary sings this beautiful song that we read. After that moment, Mary would not have felt like a person who had found favor with God. Her entire life would have been in shambles. She and her fiancé, Joseph, who at this point would also have been socially cast out because he stood by her, They had to travel 100 miles on foot at the peak of her pregnancy uh, at the whim of the Roman government who was afraid of this Jewish people and they wanted to know exactly how many of them there were so that they could control them better. And so they have to travel to Bethlehem where Joseph's ancestors are from, this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere where she would give birth to a son of God in a barn. As Pastor Kyle shared with us a couple of weeks ago, it's likely that this barn was actually just a small, dark, dingy cave. Not a super ideal place to give birth to a little boy. As we know, that little boy would grow up into an incredible man. 
who many believed would wage war against the enemies of their people. But instead of seeing her son rise to glorious victory on behalf of their people, Mary would be subjected to sit helpless at the foot of the cross and witness his violent and humiliating and excruciatingly painful public execution instead. At the moment of his death, when I imagine her grief must have been unbearable, I think that Mary had to have gone back to that first moment with the angel. She must have wondered if it had been better, if it would have been better if she had just said no. She had to question why, in the 30 years since that moment, she had never once felt like someone who had found favor with God. As it turns out, what Mary's obedience would earn for her was a life of struggle. It was a life of sacrifice. It was a life of heartbreak. Mary's life is known as this quintessential story of obedience to God in the Bible. And honestly, that should terrify us. Because what that means is being obedient to God will lead us down a path in which we rarely feel favored by God. I imagine that after Jesus dies and is resurrected and sort of ascends into heaven in this really strange way, for the rest of Mary's life, she had to wonder what it meant to be one of God's favored children. She had to wonder if what she had done, if the sacrifice of her entire life actually meant something to the world. And yet, through her own obedience and through her son's ultimate obedience, which I believe he learned from her, the world will be brought to salvation. Of course, we know that because we read the Christmas story every year, over and over again. And we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history to teach us. But Mary, she had no idea what was coming for her. She had no idea all that her yes would mean when she said it. And still, she accepted the grace of God with an unbelievable kind of obedience. Because what she did know, what she did understand, was that God was starting to bring the world to salvation and she had the chance to be a part of it. That's what she knew. Now, I don't believe it was Mary's prior holiness that qualified her to bear God into the world. I don't believe that it was her perfect prayer life or her stellar temple attendance record or her memorization of scripture. I don't even think it was her virtue or her goodness. The Bible never actually mentions any of those things. We don't actually learn that much about who Mary was before all of this happened to her. But what it does mention is her obedience to God. Her willingness 
to say yes and to trust that God is always saying yes to us, even in the moments when we are saying no. My favorite pastor and teacher, Nadia Boltz-Weber, sends out these emails, um, I I say as if we're friends. I subscribe to her email list, Nadia and I, we go way back. Uh, But she, she wrote this about Mary a few days ago, and it was just perfect. It just spoke straight at the heart of what I felt like I was being called to say today. This is what she says about Mary. I think that this is exactly what Mary understood. That what qualifies us for God's grace isn't our goodness. What qualifies us for God's grace is nothing more than our need for God's grace. She says, I hope so. Because I just can't manage to muster up a yes to what seemed like God's conditional maybe toward me. But God's yes about me, for me, and toward me, that's different. That is a useful miracle. Even as Mary responds with her own yes to God, uncertain of all the struggle and the burden and the pain that this will mean for her, Mary knows in her soul that something incredibly profound is happening in this moment. A useful miracle, you might say. Not really for her, but for us, for the world. Mary's song that we read today, the Magnificat, as it is called, is a song that tells us of a world that will be flipped upside down by God the grace of God. Through her worshipful song, she reveals her knowledge about how this child she will bear would someday completely change the way of the world. I am the lowest of the low, she sings, but I know I will be remembered as blessed and highly favored because of what God has done for us here today. The proud will be scattered, the powerful lifted, uh, brought down, the lowly lifted up, The hungry will be filled. The rich will be sent away empty-handed because they already have everything that they need. This is the world that my son will bring, she, she says to us. And I don't know about you, but when I look around these days, it seems like having our world flipped upside down is exactly what we need. Some of us need to be humbled And some of us need to be lifted up that we might all come to know and experience God's generous mercy. We need to be filled by the grace of God and figure out how to pour it out again so that God's grace might reside inside of our hearts and our lives. We need to figure out how to invert the order of our world so that heaven can be built on earth. It's a pretty radical thing, Mary's song. And what she tells us in all of her obedience, in all of her grace, is that we live in a world that needs our obedience to this God who flips everything upside down. So that what is human might be made divine, what is broken might be made whole, What is sick might be healed. What is dead 
might be brought to new life again. Let us pray. Holy God, we are here today with open ears and open hearts, so eager and so ready to hear your yes to us. We pray that you would help us to find the kind of obedience that Mary had so that like her, we might bear your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, into this world. It is in his name that we pray together this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.